Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, it's too soon to know all the ways the COVID-19 pandemic reshaped our decisions about life and family. But during the year of uncertainty, many women decided to protect their reproductive futures by freezing their eggs. Just a little over a decade ago, egg freezing was considered an experimental procedure. Here's infertility specialist Dr. Jim Toner in a 2010 interview with Atlanta's WSB-TV. For years, we've been able to freeze sperm and freeze embryos, but not plain old eggs. Uh, But being able to freeze eggs now opens up a whole lot of options to people that had none before. No longer experimental egg freezing is today a common procedure millions of women choose each year. During the pandemic, the numbers of women electing to postpone pregnancy by freezing their eggs nearly doubled. Why? And will their choice have a broader impact long term? Later in the show, virtual reality is the new gym, exercising around the world without leaving your basement. But first, joining me remotely, Dr. Nina Rusakova, reproductive endocrinologist at Boston IVF. Welcome, Nina. Thank you for having me. Also with me, Dr. John Petroza, director of the Massachusetts General Hospital's Fertility Center. Hello, John. Hello. Thank you for having me. And also with us, Nikki Richardson, who decided to freeze her eggs. Welcome, Nikki. Hi. Thank you. So excited to be here. Glad to have all of you. I'm going to start with you, Dr. Etsakova. You pointed out something that I didn't know, that the demand has continually gone up when the experimental label was no longer attached to this, and that was uh, 2012. Uh, talk to me about that, because I didn't know what happened in that moment that uh, suddenly made this procedure go from experimental to commonplace. Yes, uh, the acceptance of egg freezing in the scientific community definitely was wide-reaching, and it reached patients, and they elected to proceed with this technology, and there's a lot of sort of commercialization of this technology as well through things like egg freezing parties, and there was a lot more uh, widespread awareness of the technology. But interestingly, we've also seen a lot of increased rates of egg freezing spurred on by the coronavirus and some of the changes in relationship status and some of the difficulties in um, finding finding partners. So we've seen a lot of increases over the course of the last year in the use of this technology. Were you surprised by that? We were surprised to see our rates go up. However, um, when we start talking about it on an individual patient basis, such as what I see in my office, you can understand some of the reasoning behind it. Um, there's a lot of fragile relationships. Um, a lot of people are having difficulty uh, finding new partners uh, as meeting people <laughs> in the real world becomes more difficult. So when I speak to my patients about it, some of the reasons are, are quite clear. And so it becomes less surprising to analyze the numbers and the figures when you look at it from a more uh, human and individual patient perspective. And just to put this in perspective, when you say the rates went up, what was the margin, the percentage margin of increase? We've seen about a 30 to 50 percent increased rate of egg freezing in our practice, uh, and that's compared to numbers 
pre-pandemic. So looking at the six months leading into the pandemic and then looking at the same uh, corresponding uh, months this uh, later year, so later 2020 heading into 2021, um, the rates have gone up uh, significantly. And then also patient interest, uh, expressing interest in this type of technology and getting, getting more information about it and seeking consultation uh, has gone up even more. So, Nikki Richardson, you were a part of that percentage increase, some of the millions of women that that elected to have their eggs frozen. So first, tell me why you decided to do it. Um, It's been something I've been thinking about for the past, I would say, one to two years. Um, I just turned 35 last week, and that was just kind of in the back of my mind that if I was going to do this, I wanted to do it before my 35th birthday. I work in labor and delivery, so fertility is discussed all the time. And there's a label placed on women after 35 called um, advanced maternal age or even geriatric age. So I spoke to one of the physicians at Boston IVF, Emily Seidler, last year, and she just encouraged me to at least get my testing done to see um, how my numbers were looking. And then when I I tried to figure out how to make it feasible financially, and then I just decided... um, to just do it. Describe the procedure, you know, not in great detail, but I mean briefly yeah. so people get a sense of, of what, what's involved. Yeah, after um, last fall I did my testing and that looked reassuring, though that doesn't um, necessarily indicate like how many eggs you're going to get. And then when you decide to do it, it's based off of your cycle. I went in and got an ultrasound and blood work and everything looked good and I started my injections, my hormone injections that evening. And everything is just very timely. So every two days I was going in the office in the morning before work, getting a pelvic ultrasound, um, getting blood work done, and then they would adjust my medications if needed. I was doing two to three injections into my abdomen nightly for almost two weeks. And then um, once my follicles were the appropriate size and amount and my um, hormone levels looked good, they scheduled my procedure. And the procedure was the easiest part. I went in the morning, um, they got me prepped within 30 minutes, gave me an IV, gave me some antibiotics. I met with the anesthesiologist and then I went into the room, I laid down on the table, I took a nice nap thanks to some uh, a medication called propofol and I woke up 30 minutes later feeling great and they had retrieved all of my eggs. Are you glad you did it? Oh, I'm I'm so, so thankful. Anyone I talk to, I would highly encourage to do this. Um, I've had patients in the past that um, were in a similar situation as me. They did egg retrieval, and they just said that it took the pressure off of them for just dating. You know, they were able to date smarter, and just, you know, knowing that their fertility was kind of preserved just gave them peace of mind. I'm so, so thankful I did it. Well, somebody else that we all know highly suggests that this is a procedure that women like yourself should undertake. Here's Oprah promoting egg harvesting as a backup. You need to break up with him. And you also need to harvest your eggs. If I was a 34-year-old woman out here in the world where it's hard out here for a pimp, pimp, as you say, I would be harvesting my eggs. That was Oprah with the OG Chronicles as she and Gail having a girlfriend chat. And the issue of uh, just as Dr. Restakova has pointed out, the fragile relationships came up and she thought, you know, this is something that women should do. So now, Dr. Petroza, because it's so commonplace now, you know, this is something that you're talking to more and more of your patients about over at the Mass General Hospital Fertility Center. First, tell me how much a part of your practice this has become? 
Well, I, I agree with Nina that um, fertility preservation has become one of the biggest and fastest growing parts of our practice um, ever since this became non-experimental. We've, we probably have seen about a 10 to 20% increase in growth um, over those years. When we look at what's happened since the pandemic, I don't think we've seen quite the growth that maybe Boston IVF has seen, but we definitely have seen a little bit of an increase. And there's no doubt that the number of inquiries about fertility preservation has increased. So there roughly, as I understand it, about two groups of women, or women fall into two categories, uh, who might approach uh, and be thinking about this. There may be women who have a disease that could interfere with their fertility, and then others, like Nikki, who are looking long-term about their reproductive health. Uh, talk to me about that. Yeah, that, that's correct. You know, so for those that have a disease, it, it's a no-brainer. You know, for a lot of these women, they're either um, single, and, and there's no doubt that we're starting to see patients with cancers at a much earlier age, specific cancers like colon cancer and breast cancer. So these patients are going to go through some chemotherapies that may render them with some difficulty with ovarian function. Um, but those that are coming in for non-medical reasons has been part of our fastest growing practice and one that we spend a lot of time consulting our patients and talking to them about what's involved with egg preservation. I think it's important to know who are the best candidates for this and who might have a better chance later on, because you can extract the eggs at this point and that can go very well, but that's not a guarantee that when you get ready to use them that it might be a successful procedure. So let's let's break that down, Dr. Petroza. That's absolutely right. And I think this is where really being clear with patients is very, very important because people do come in at various ages. Um, you know, we have people coming in who are in their mid-20s. We have patients who are coming in in their, in their early to mid-40s. And there's no doubt that each of those age groups represents a, a certain potential for success. And, and one of the things I always counsel patients is, listen, we have very, very limited data, right? This has been off the experimental list since late 2012 with ASRM sort of putting their documentation in 2013. So we have very, very limited data. And most of the data that we have now are really on patients who are egg donors, women who are in their 20s, who are freezing their eggs, and we track that data on an annual basis. What we have very little long-term data on and success rate that on are women who are coming in who are doing this for non-medical reasons who are in their 30s because it's so new. It's such a new technology. But the limited data that we have, and there are some nice papers out there. There's one from Shady Grove, which is in Virginia, and another one from here in Boston, from Brigham and Women's Hospital, where we have some some information we can share with patients because when we sit down, when I sit down with the patient, the first thing I want to know is, okay, age is a big part of this, and what are your ovaries doing now for that given age. And then with these graphs that have come out from these papers, I can show them, okay, if we're going to do this, and if we're going to do this right, this is what your chances are of having a live born based on the number of eggs that you need. So if someone comes in and she's 32, I can say, okay, you need about 12 to 20 eggs to have about an 80 or 90% chance of having a healthy baby when it's all said and done. If someone comes in and they're 39 or 40, guess what? You're going to need about 40 eggs to have that 80% chance of having a baby. And so when I look at their ovarian function, it's very important that they understand this is what I think you're going to do with this cycle. So we have all these tests. We have blood tests that can determine ovarian function. We have ultrasounds that can determine ovarian function. And I can get a sense as to how I think they're going to respond and how many eggs I think we're going to get in general. 
And as I sort of look at and, and discuss with the patient, I can say, okay, you may need to do this once. You may need to do this twice. You may need to do this three times. Um, and that's important to know because you don't want a patient to come in and be disappointed to say, listen, you know, uh, I, I didn't get as many eggs as I thought, and I know we need a certain number um, for this to be successful. It's important to be transparent. It's important to share the information. It's important to share what we're expecting to get to make this um, a worthwhile venture for the patient. Hmm. Now, Dr. Rostakova, I'm hearing also, even though it's a common procedure, it's no longer experimental, we've talked about how many more women are doing it. We've heard from Nikki about why she chose to do it that there still remains a stigma of some sort for some women. So before you respond to that, let's take a listen to Danielle Page. This is a woman who froze her eggs in 2018 at 29 years old, and, and she was faced with stigma. I found that a lot of people are very secretive about this. They feel really ashamed. They feel like they failed at something because they're freezing their eggs because they didn't achieve what you're supposed to on a certain biological timeline at this point in their life. And I really hope that that changes. I really hope that people start being more open about this and feeling more empowered that we're living in a time where this is an option that's on the table that you can do. So Dr. Restikova, are you seeing that? Have you uh, heard that from your patients? Interesting question. I, I feel that most patients who have made their way to me have already shaken off maybe some of the stigma attached to this. And I do feel that a lot of the sort of the reason that the stigma is becoming less and less is that there are more people talking about it and there are more just folks like you and folks in the media who are addressing these issues and through more awareness and through more people being willing to share their story it becomes less stigmatized and i would add to that there's a lot more insurers so there's a lot more people thinking about this offering this as a retention tool for their employees to offer comprehensive fertility benefits packages and so the availability of this type of technology and the ability for being covered by your insurance through your workplace is allowing more people to start talking about it and actually seeking this out as part of their employment package but nikki as you found out not for everybody because you had to fund this yourself yes i did which was a big factor for me so I personally probably only had the funds to do one cycle and the physicians were stating like you really just don't know what your outcome is going to be until the day after, you know, the day of your procedure where they say we collected this many eggs. But I just for Christmas last year asked my family, you know, just for money towards my egg fund and I took out of my savings. And I work in, in Massachusetts where it's one of the only states in the country where IVF is covered for women, but I spoke to my insurance and my pharmacist, and they stated that you have to prove, you know, infertility to get anything covered. So everything for me, including the medications, was all out of pocket. Did you face or fear any stigma about taking this approach? No, I actually didn't. I mean, I have a wonderful group of strong women in my life who, um, you know, would do the same. And my grandmother, who I'm visiting here right now, is 83, and she's just so proud of me and so happy that she got to see this in her lifetime and said that she would have done the same, you know, back then. So, no, I, I was very proud that I did it, but I, I could see how someone might feel that way because, yeah, you have this biological clock and the, the old term of an old maid, you know, you get to a certain age and why aren't you married? Why don't you have children yet? Is it something wrong with me? But 
I think just, you know, the times are changing and women are doing more of what they want in their lives, traveling, getting their careers in place before having children. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Dr. Nina Restakova of Boston IVF, Dr. John Petroza of Massachusetts General Hospital's Fertility Center, and egg-freezing patient Nikki Richardson. We're discussing the increased rate of women freezing their eggs, especially during COVID. Dr. Restakova, listen, all of these decisions are not just purely physical ones. When you are interacting with your patients, this is a question I'm going to have for all of you, what the emotional state is of those patients by the time they've come to you, they've made the decision, as you've said, many of them have dismissed the potential stigma, and here they are. But, you know, this is a big decision. It's a very big decision. Some things that we've touched on already are kind of the physical factors of, of going through the process. And Nikki, thanks for doing a great job overviewing all the steps um, of, of the process. I think that was really, really clear and just so helpful for, for people. So there's the physical features. We've already talked about some of those financial, um, but but the emotional process is tough. And, and a lot of times what we're seeing in our office, and I'm curious to hear if Dr. Petroza is hearing the same, but we're seeing people coming at various inflection points in either their relationships or something's happened in their life and they're now ready to take this step. And so I am seeing a lot of patients who have just come out of a tough relationship or have now realized that a relationship is not going to be proceeding in the pathway that they had hoped. Um, So it is a very emotional process. However, I do feel that egg freezing for some represents a lot of hope that there is fertility potential and you know future relationship potential because a lot of patients are freezing these eggs in anticipation of potentially fertilizing them with a future partner. And so it can be also a very hopeful process for people. So although we go through the full range of the emotional spectrum through through some of our consultations, um, it's really nice to come out at the other end um, having something to show for it. And hopefully that's that's a good egg yield. And I have worked with many patients who come back in the future and use those eggs too. And that's also very rewarding when they've made the right decision to freeze them um, at the time that they did. Dr. Petroza, what about you? I think, you know, patients definitely, by the time they come to me, um, have really thought this out. You know, so really they're just trying to get that final piece of information. In some ways, they're sort of wanting to confirm maybe what they've read or what they've heard from their friends and colleagues. Um, you know, these are smart people. And, and, and I think, you know, they're... They're very adamant about learning more about the process. I think they appreciate when we give them the facts and we're very transparent about what's involved. There are risks involved with doing an egg retrieval. And they want to know what their chances are of success. You know, this is a big investment. You know, They're going to be paying thousands of dollars to do this, and they want to know, okay, how much am I going to have to pay in order to have a reasonable chance of this working? And I agree with Nina. You know, there, there is this, this element of security, this element of hope, and one of the nice things about freezing eggs, and I, and I even discuss this with my, my patients who have cancer, is that when you create embryos, especially if you have a partner, you know, that's something that is jointly owned. When you create eggs and you freeze them, those are yours, right? You control the destiny of those eggs. And that's a powerful, powerful thing for a woman to have. And I, and I think it really gives them that sense of hope that Nina mentioned. Nikki, you were kind enough to share some of the emotions you felt as you were going through the process. Is there more to your emotional state you'd like to point out to people that, you know, maybe they should be prepared for or something that just struck you in a certain way? Yeah, I mean, I remember um, there was a few months before I started the process when I had decided to do it and I was just waiting for the right time because, you know, you're giving about 
two weeks to this, you know, every single day. So you want to make sure that there's a time when you have no plans or you're going out of town or things like that, any other engagements. Um, and leading up to it, you know, I was, I was nervous, um, you know, just of the unknown. And then I remember the first night, you know, I'm a nurse. I give injections all the time. And the first night I had to give myself the first injection. I just sat there with the needle and I couldn't inject myself at first. And, you know, it's harder to do than you think. And then I did it. And the, the next day I was actually looking forward to doing it again. It, it really is so empowering. And I was also going to an acupuncturist in the city who was focused on fertility and you know, I, I had stopped drinking any alcohol and I was trying to eat, you know, foods that could help with egg quality and everything. So I just, you know, really gave it my all for those two weeks. And one day at work, I just started crying out of the blue, I think, just because my hormone levels were so high. And another day, they're like, oh, your estrogen's higher than we anticipated. We need you to do this one injection right away so you don't start ovulating and then we lose your eggs. So my friend had to rush to my house get um, a medication out of my fridge, bring it to work, which I injected myself in the bathroom. <laughs> so there's a lot at stake. I would say it's definitely an emotional roller coaster. Um, I just kind of trusted the process and just was like, this is out of my hands. Um, and I trusted my physician and it, it really worked out for me. So doctors, I wonder if there are myths about this procedure that you'd like to knock down in this moment and or something that you believe people really, really need to pay attention to. Because, yes, it's common and, uh, yes, it's uh, safe, as we've discussed, but this is a sophisticated procedure. So I'll start with you, Dr. Petroza. I think the myth that people might have is that this is going to guarantee a pregnancy. And I think people need to realize this. This is great technology. And over the years, it's gotten better and better and better. But just by freezing eggs doesn't necessarily guarantee a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people have to realize that. Is there something else that you think it's really important for people to think about as they begin to explore the possibility of undergoing egg, egg freezing? As Nikki said, this is this is not an easy process. You know, this is... Um, going to be an investment of time. It's going to be investment of resources. I think you need to be ready for a lot of early mornings, a lot of um, sore bellies. And I think the other thing is, you know, uh, what I've noticed with patients is once we've gone through that initial consult and we sort of have talked about what we want to achieve and the number of eggs maybe that we're hoping for, I think people feel that that's their goal. And, and I want them to be very cautious that, you know, you, you want this to be successful, you want this to work, um, but I feel people can f- feel drawn into this and, and, and feel like they have to do a lot of cycles to make this work. Mm-hmm. I think having a realistic picture in advance is important. Dr. Restakova, what myths do you think uh, need to be addressed as we're talking about something that seems rather miraculous on its face? I think John really addressed the biggest one, which is which is the myth that it 100% is 100% successful. It's not, and I think that we're up against limitations of human human biology because even um, in an ideal reproductive cycle, you're never going to achieve 100% chance of success, nor will you with IVF treatment. So I think that's the most important one. Um, but the other piece is everybody has a different type of response to egg freezing, and some patients feel very uncomfortable and 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 sore through the process. 
process, some people feel fine. Um, so even if you've heard a, a horror story or a very, very, very calming experience from somebody else, uh, it's possible that you may have a different experience going through the process. Um, and ultimately also everybody's journey is a little bit different um, and no two protocols are alike. So um, even though two patients may seem similar, um, it's, this is such a highly individualized process. So um, it's possible to have different experiences and different kind of treatment plans going through all with different outcomes. So no two people, no two plans are alike. It's highly individualized. And even though we do our best to maximize success rates, unfortunately, they're never going to achieve 100% uh, chance of success for live birth. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Dr. Nina Restakova of Boston IVF, Dr. John Petroza of Massachusetts General Hospital's Fertility Center, and egg freezing patient Nikki Richardson. We're discussing the increased rate of women freezing their eggs, especially during COVID. Now, let me follow up, Dr. Restakova, and ask you this question. Um, we saw the bump, or you saw the bump, uh, in the number of women asking for this procedure during this COVID period. Do you expect that percentage rate to go down or continue to go up? That's a great question, Callie. I, I think it'll probably continue to rise. Um, we have probably sort of made up for some of the COVID-induced um, fertility delays um, as we were unable to offer services for several months in 2020. So I think we've probably made up for that in the latter portion of 2020. But I, I do expect it to rise as there's more awareness about this uh, for individuals. And similarly, there's more utilization of these technologies by the LGBTQ community. Um, there likely will be wider utilization. So I think that um, it'll probably continue to increase, though um, I'm not sure uh, when that rise uh, will, will reach its peak. Uh, Dr. Petroza, what say you? Would you agree? Oh, I, I completely agree. Um, like I said earlier, this has been one of the fastest growing parts of our practice. And I think as we start to see um, the oncology communities really fostering patients and making them aware about this option before they start chemotherapy, we're going to see this. Um, I think we're going to start to see some legislature going through both here in Massachusetts and neighboring states that will now start to offer or at least mandate uh, fertility preservation coverage, um, at least for, for, for medical reasons. And as Nina said, there are a lot of third-party payers that are now starting to incorporate this into their plans, and especially in Boston where we see a lot of, of, of industry starting to come in, high-tech industry, um, things like Google and Microsoft. Those are companies that really have sort of um, embraced this concept of providing fertility preservation opportunities to their employees. I, I think we'll start to see that more and more. All right. Now, none of us on this call are, you know, population specialists, so I'm going to make that caveat to begin with. But it is something to think about uh, this procedure, which is allowing more women to have a shot at increasing their fertility and certainly preserving, as we've said, their reproductive futures. And we are experiencing right now, at the same time, a decline in population. So I'm wondering doctors, if you think if this continues uh, to have great interest and more women are doing it, that will reverse the population decline because there will be more women, presumably just later, you know, going through and becoming pregnant. Dr. Estakova? It's a great question, Callie. We, we don't know how it's going to affect the, the size of our population because it could cause a lot of people to delay their fertility and then come back into um, having pregnancies at a later point. Um, it could permit pregnancies at later or more advanced ages, or it 
potentially could just give uh, people some peace of mind um, to go and explore um, relationships uh, more openly. Um, so I so I don't know how it's going to affect things. Um, the possibility is that it could further the population decline if if people do uh, push push things off and then decide to have fewer children as a result. Um, but it's not a clear cut correlation. Dr. Pertoza, would you agree? Oh, I wish I had that magic crystal ball, Kelly, to sort of figure that out. You know, I, I think when we look at what we're seeing now with egg preservation, you know, we're probably seeing as far as the, the number of patients that are coming back to utilize their oocytes. Once again, it's still early. We've, you know, we've only had this around for eight years. Um, we're only seeing about 10 to 13% of women coming back who are utilizing um, their eggs. And so it'll be interesting to see if that trend continues or if we'll start to see more and more women coming back to use their eggs. It's hard to tell. Um, I, I wish I could give you a, a better answer. So, Nikki, what do you think? You're you're in the cohort of women who elected to do this. So what's your sense uh, among your own groups and, and uh, you know, what you're aware of? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think it could go either way. I think the decline is probably in response to just women, you know, having children later and then having less time to have, you know, as many children as people would if you started at, you know, 19, which our grandparents probably did. Um, you know, I'm very much still hoping to have hopefully two or three children, um, but but time will tell. Um, but I know many of my friends, you know, definitely want to have children. They just, I tell people, you know, Making the baby is easy, but finding, you know, a good partner to raise the child with is the trickier part. So, yeah, time will tell, I guess. Would you say for yourself that the COVID situation accelerated your decision? Um, I think it was kind of, you know, like I said, it was more about just my upcoming, I guess, 35th birthday. So it was kind of coincidence that we then had a pandemic. But, um, you know, I think when the pandemic hit, and, you know, just so much was out of our control. Um, I think this was something that I could really grasp onto and take control of. Um, it was a good distraction. It was something positive I was working on. Um, so it actually ended up just being the perfect timing for me. Um, so, yeah, I think it did, it did play a part. And it was just, yeah, something positive for me to focus on when the world was just um, a very, you know, scary and unknown place. Is there something you would like to make clear to our listeners about uh, just understanding exactly what the procedure is and isn't. Um, and, and certainly you're speaking for yourself, but I mean, just to knock down any myths from the patient standpoint. Yeah. And like, you know, like the physicians were saying, um, you know, everyone's different. Some people have a really difficult time with the hormones. Some feel like nothing has changed. I just think to, you know, go, go into it open-minded, um, just, you know, trusting your body and just knowing that, you know, our bodies are incredible, and I'm just so proud of what I was able to do. I think it's miraculous. Um, and afterwards, I just kept thinking, you know, my body and just so appreciative of what it can do. And, yeah, just going with an open mind and, you know, no matter what the result is, just know that, you you know, you, you did your best, and that's what was meant to be for you. Um, and just to be proud of doing it. Um, you know, don't worry about comparing yourself to other people, which I think my generation just does so much with, with social media. Um, you know, take your fertility into your own hands and see what the future brings after that. But it's just, it's a nice security blanket to have. And I, I just highly encourage if it's feasible for people to, to go ahead and do it. 
Dr. Restakova, where does egg freezing fit now in uh, along the spectrum of the future of reproductive choices for women? Because we could say it's 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 not the future; it's current now. So so where is it now on the spectrum, and and what should we be looking to that might be coming up? I think it's a widely accepted part of the spectrum. If you had asked a group of professionals this question maybe eight eight years ago, eight or nine years ago, it would have been a much more controversial part of the discussion. But it's widely accepted. Um, it's used very widely for uh, fertility preservation in the setting of cancer. As I mentioned before, um, transgender individuals may choose to preserve their fertility as well, and that's a very growing part of, of our practice also. Um, so it's much more a part of the conversation. Um, I think there's probably a lot of information that needs to be disseminated amongst the medical community about this as well. Um, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of women in their 30s uh, who are only in the care of a primary care doctor or an OBGYN. And I think it's time that this conversation starts uh, being part of the part of the picture um, come a certain point, age 30, 35, um, to discuss fertility options. So it's, it's, it's a large part of it. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more um, conversation about keeping your options open and being more proactive about discussing fertility, um, even in the setting of somebody who is presumed to be fertile and has no infertility issues, but as a sort of a insurance policy towards future fertility. So it's a very important part of the discussion, and I'm glad that uh, we're having it today. Uh, Dr. Petroza, same question to you. Where, where is this, uh, where is egg freezing on the spectrum of reproductive health choices and, and where might it be as, as years pass? Oh, this is a great question, and, and I echo what, what Nina said. I, I, I think this is going to be sort of our – it's going to be in our, in our toolbox of, 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 of things that we can use to really um, improve the, the opportunities that women have to, to sort of maintain that ability to conceive and have children. Um, I, I, I agree. I, I think we need to um, get it out there, you know, let our providers know, let our patients know, but we need to do this in a very careful way. I, I know that – um, you know, our, our National Society, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, has tried to, for example, in the past, make people aware of fertility just in general. And there was a lot of pushback because people felt that was creating a little bit of fear. Uh, and, and that's not the intent. And I think with this as well, I think there are some companies out there that create fear to try to get people to undergo egg banking. And that shouldn't be the case. It should be um, awareness. It should be saying, listen, these are opportunities that are available. And I think reaching out to patients in, in a way that is meaningful, reaching out to providers in a way that says, listen, just bring it up in discussion. You have a 30-year-old, you have a 31-year-old who's not thinking about um, their fertility, bringing up in the conversation and then providing those tools to engage that patient will, will, will be key because this, this is here to stay. You know, we've been freezing sperm for decades. We're, we're thankfully now able to freeze eggs. It's creating lots of opportunities, and we have to be very cognizant and very thoughtful on how we do this. Well, I think that's a great place to end the conversation. I want to thank all of you for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Dr. Nina Restakova is a reproductive endocrinologist at Boston IVF. Dr. John Petroza is a director of Massachusetts General Hospital's Fertility Center. And Nikki Richardson decided to freeze her eggs and completed the process. 
Coming up, yoga or Pilates, spin classes or strength training. The pandemic has forced exercise buffs inside and online. Now they're breaking a sweat using the next digital iteration, virtual reality. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. During the early part of the pandemic, exercisers hiked and biked as an outdoor escape from the COVID lockdown. Bicycles, new and used, were in limited supply. As the lockdown continued, sales of the pricey and popular Peloton stationary bikes skyrocketed. And exercise consumers looking for less expensive options kept moving, attending internet classes on bodybuilding, yoga, and old-fashioned aerobics. And now many of them are looking to expand their options with a different kind of digital exercise, virtual reality. Joining me remotely, Eric Malifu, co-founder of Verzoom, makers of VZ Fit, a virtual reality exercise software. Welcome, Eric. How are you, Kelly? I'm great. Andrea Sorelli is the CEO and owner of 4XVR, a virtual reality studio. Hello, Andrea. Hi. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you. And Amir Madmoon is a student at Wheaton College who has used virtual reality games to break a sweat and lose weight. Welcome, Amir. Hello. Happy to be here. So I'm so thrilled to have all of you. This is brand new territory for me, though I've started to hear about it more. Eric, I'm going to start with you because your company makes the software. So explain to me what it is the software does exactly. Sure. So our goal was to make you feel like you were experiencing the outdoors while you're inside. And obviously with COVID, that has an extra dimension. But, you know, living in New England, that can mean winters and nights and mornings. So virtual reality is a way to take you to different locations. So we make games and experiences that take you there. We use Street View that is Google's technology that has ridden 10 million miles all around the world. And either on a bike or just standing in your room doing standing exercises, your motion generates the driving through those roads. And you can pick wherever you want to go. You can see where you grew up. You can go on any vacation you ever wanted to take. Just unlimited variety. When did you realize that virtual reality could be a platform for exercise? Well, uh, I've been making video games for a long time and started experimenting with virtual reality back in 2014 when the Oculus was announced. And at the time, uh, I was making virtual dance games uh, for a company called Harmonix. We also made Rock Band, which kind of got us into the physicality. And from there, when VR came out, we thought, it would be great to meld that with that same kind of physicality. And I met my um, co-founder, Eric Jansen, who is an avid cyclist and a business executive. And we, we launched for Zoom, you know, with the idea that uh, moving your body could make you move in virtual reality. And to be clear, Oculus is the headset. That's correct. Yep. Uh, there have been many uh, different ones, but uh, right now, Oculus makes the kind of standard ones that are standalone and lightweight and pretty low price now. So it's been a number of years since these things came out, but they're finally at a great price point and ease of use for everyone. 
Well, it's clear that there is a lot of excitement about this, um, and Oculus was the entry point for a lot of people, including Kelly Ripa. Here she is raving about the Supernatural app on her Oculus Quest during a recent episode of Live with Kelly and Ryan. I'm seeing the Great Wall of China, and I'm and I'm perched on top of it. And it feels and realistic. It's so realistic that I'm like, I cannot move because I will fall to my death. <laughs> and then I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm saving Mark from the orbs, the orbs, the orbs. I'm sore. I was sweating. I was dripping with sweat. I was out of breath. This and then they're like, you want. It's everything okay. you want. So it's everything she wants, Andrea, (laughs) in an exercise game. You run a studio where people can try all kinds of these uh, programs and games. Tell me about it. Tell me about 4XVR and what happens there. Yeah, so we are a space for you to experience virtual reality. We also not just have games, but like you were just showing with Kelly's game there. We also have education, training, like I said, all experiences. Um, We're set up almost like a boutique type of a space. We have couches so that people can interact and watch you play and play with you. So we really love the community piece of it. It's about having fun, but it's also we're bringing in all types of experiences, like I said, education, training, and now fitness. So how did you get into it? What attracted you about this? I've been a techie for years. I've been in IT for a long time. Um, My kids were all interested in the um, virtual reality space a couple of years ago. And just like any parent, you do the math and I do how much it's going to cost, right? And I said, you know, why don't we hold off? And then we were in Canada one summer and there was a virtual reality arcade up there. And I said, you know what? I think I can bring this back to Boston. There's none in Boston. Um, That's what we did. And my piece is, I mean, just to get our doors open, Um, you know, we have the gaming in there, uh, which is a lot of fun, but my heart is in the education, training, fitness, other unique experiences, um, that just, you know, help the virtual reality space evolve. There's a lot of great games being written. There's a lot of good experiences and, and content. And, uh, we want to be at a place to host that as well. And to be clear, I looked at an online site that showed this game, you'll burn these many calories, this game, doing this exercise, you'll burn. You know, so this is a real workout. Talk to us about the realness of the workout, because I think people are thinking, okay, I'm watching it and I'm there, but am I really getting a workout? Yeah, it's funny because um, I've, you know, when we opened, I, I was looking at Virtual Reality Institute of Health and Exercise, which might be what you were looking at, um, and we've brought in very intentively some games that have a high level of exertion. Um, And, you know, we let our customers know about that. But when someone gets in and does um, a high intense, high movement, high activity game, they're breaking a sweat, they're, um, you know, out of breath. And then they realize, wow, I didn't know that was such a workout on the converse side. They they didn't realize how out of shape they are when they go, (laughs) you know, a couple of rounds with their husband or wife. Um, but it's a lot of fun. Um, and we wanted to, to have that experience grow because, you know, the best way to work out is when you don't know you're working out. That's exactly right. That's an excellent point. Well, I wanted to give people a sense of what one of these games would sound like. Here is a clip from Creed's launch trailer. And this is, I know, one of the highest intensities. This is feature sound from the boxing ring and the characters coaching sessions. In the blue corner, Adonis. 
Hey, you don't look so good. You know, you want to take a day off. Sorry, Rock. Just thinking about what it took to get here. Good. One step at a time. One punch at a time. One round at a time. So if people don't recognize that reference, that, of course, is from the movie Creed, you know, a spinoff from there in the game. It sounds pretty intense to me, I have to say, Andrea. (laughs) Kelly, it's one of our favorite and most intense experiences we have, and people love it. And we actually give out water bottles right after the fight is over because you need it. You need a breather, and it's a lot of fun, and and it's great. Like I said, if you know, we marketed, I think, one Valentine's Day that if, you know, come in with your spouse or significant other and just go a couple of rounds with them. It's a lot of fun. All right. So, Amir, Mad Moon, you have been playing a lot of games. You're a student at Wheaton College. We assume you're doing it around your studies, of course. So first, tell me how you got into virtual reality exercise. Okay. So as a child of the 21st century, uh, I pretty much grew up on the internet. And so watching YouTube growing up and seeing like many of the influencers that I like, you know, just kind of watch play video games uh, and seeing them get into VR. I remember one of the first VR games that I ever saw was something called Super Hot, which was basically time only moves when you move, which was something super interesting to see just playing on like a laptop or a PC. But when it got into VR, it became a lot more real. And so over the years, as VR became um, slowly and slowly more popular, it's not quite in the mainstream yet, but it's so very close to getting there. seeing like all these people playing like Beat Saber, for example, or Super Hot or Pistol Whip really made me want to just go and, you know, get a headset and be able to play these games that I that I could see like all of the people that I looked up to growing up also playing and seemingly having a blast with. Uh, and not to mention that college was really the first time where I started getting into like exercising and, and personal health. And so just having the ability to work out in VR in a medium where I'm like not incredibly bored with like running or just doing like normal, um, I I guess like free weights or body weights, being able to effectively trick myself into staying healthy. It was the best of both worlds. So how often do you play? Uh, So as senior year has been ramping up, it's I thought it would go down a little bit more, but uh, because of the pandemic and because of just working with my school's uh, Imagine Spaces, because now they're really trying to market their VR spaces, uh, I've actually ramped up my play to uh, quite a bit more than I thought I would, to about, I'd say, three or four hours a week if I can manage it between all of my classes. Well, that seems a good pace for, you know, if you were doing other kinds of exercise, that wouldn't be out of bounds. That would seem to fit into your schedule and you can control it actually on your schedule, right? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I have my personal headset, which I have in my room. If I don't want to like go out to those innovation spaces, or if I want to say, help out some friends who are working there or help out some other people who are trying to get into VR, then it gives me an excuse to also like go over there and teach people and also get to play on their system. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Eric Malifieux, co-founder of Verzoom, makers of VZ Fit, a virtual reality exercise software. Andrea Sorelli, CEO and owner of 4XVR, a virtual reality studio. And Amir Madmoon, a student at Wheaton College. We're talking about virtual reality exercise. Back to you, Eric. What did the pandemic do to draw more interest toward virtual reality exercise? Because, 
as I said at the outset, people found themselves inside. They're looking around trying to figure out, did it really ramp up interest? Oh, it sure did. We saw subscriptions go four times in the first couple of months of the pandemic. And then what happened was all of these Oculus headsets started selling out because Oculus didn't plan for the kind of demand that they were going to see. And that is why they spent all of last year designing the Quest 2 and really ramping up production for that. So when that came out last year in November, they've been able to sell as many as people can buy. And so the pandemic has obviously forced a lot of people inside and a lot of people turned to virtual reality for recreation and also for exercise. And we've just been really excited to add to the kinds of experiences they can have in our game. What's the difference between working out in front of a screen and we may be thinking about like the Peloton thing and uh, VR? Well, the biggest um, difference is the immersiveness. And it's really hard to convey. Uh, it might you know, be better to actually convey it here on the radio than on a TV, because if you see virtual reality on a TV from someone's viewpoint, you just think, well, that's a video game. What you don't understand is it doesn't feel like a game to you inside of it. It feels like you're inside of a real different world. And the possibilities just um, leap out at you. And so our goal was, was to make that world feel as real and interesting as possible and give you really the facility to move through that, you know, using your exercise. So that's why we started with a bike, because a bike is kind of the easiest, most natural transition from exercise to moving around in VR. But with our latest product, EasyFit, you can now follow a trainer who's doing all sorts of standing exercises that you otherwise could do on YouTube, but much less interestingly, because uh, now you're following somebody on the road and your exercise is actually what drives you to keep up with them while you're experiencing the Grand Canyon or Paris um, around you. And of course, you can ride with other players. Uh, virtual reality is no different than most modern games in that respect. A lot of the motivation comes from doing things with other people at the same time. And in VR, you can not only hear them and see kind of motions they do, but since virtuality knows what you're pointing at and what you're looking at, their characters can actually point and look at you. And it just makes a much more personal connection. And Andrea, let's talk about the COVID-15 or 20 that everybody's struggling with. And some people have found their way for weight loss specifically. And you're not only an owner, as that old TV ad used to say, you're a user too. So, <laughs> so you know that this works in terms of getting fit. Tell me about your own experience with weight control. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and you know, it's funny, I was calling it the COVID-19, um, literally. Uh, but yeah, so in the, the last month, uh, last four weeks, especially, we've been testing a new service we're bringing out, which is a virtual reality fitness class that is both a mix of virtual reality and a trainer live class. So it's a very interesting mix. But during all this testing, I have been playing almost every game I had. We've been trying to figure out what the good mix is and what games should be part of the class. And I've lost seven pounds in a month. So, I mean, this is, you know, this is awesome because you do, and I know Amir feels this too, and even and Eric as well. You know, you feel good because you're having fun while you're submerged in this virtual world. And, you know, it's not that tedious, oh, I got to get on the treadmill or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I've lost seven pounds in the last four weeks of just testing our, our um, class. Wow. Amir, what about you? So I, I remember earlier this year 
my, uh, it's a funny story because my dad bought me a pair of shorts and it just barely fit me. And he was like, oh, okay, it's fine. We'll get one a size larger. I said, don't even worry about it. Give me two weeks. I'll fit into this. And it took me like, it took me a week and a half just <laughs> wow. by playing VR to lose enough weight to fit into those shorts. So I, I absolutely like, I'm a hard perpetuator of the fact that VR can help you get fit. Uh, not to mention that it's it's not only that it can help you get fit and you have fun while doing it, so you're not really thinking about it as, as an exercise, but because you can track your progress so efficiently and because you get because you're having fun and because you're making so much headway on, uh, for example, a game that I like to play the most is Beat Saber. And really a good measure of whether you're doing better than you were last time is how much further do you get in this really hard song? Do you beat the level? Do you go on to the next level of difficulty in that same song? And because the progress is so easily trackable because you have those like measurements of being able to see how far you go of of how difficulty you can uh, compete in it's a great motivator mentally as well if you do think about it as an exercise because you know that you're getting better mm -hmm. what do you think the impact on gyms will be so amir did you frequent gyms um, before you did a lot of vr and would you go back now or not so I did frequent gyms before uh, getting really into VR. What I will say is um, I don't like running only because it's so boring. And VR gets me that same cardio, but I don't have to be bored at the same time. As for doing body weight exercise or for lifting weights, you can substitute that if you play VR games with like weighted shirts and like weighted anklets and stuff like that. Would I go back to the gym? Probably, but only for strength training. If we're talking about cardio or even just body weight exercises, definitely not. Can I challenge that? Can I ask a question on that? So Amir, um, so our class that we're put together has 20 minutes of VR cardio, and then you switch out and do 20 minutes of weights. Would that be something that you would do? I mean, that's honestly sounds like the perfect workout. I tried to do that while in school, but unfortunately the pandemic hit shortly after I got my uh, my headset. And so that wasn't like something that was very possible for me to do. That being said, that just sounds like the perfect way to exercise to me. So my question, Eric, is do you worry that this is a trend that will be impacted when more openings happen after we really come out of COVID. People are vaccinated. They can, I, I hesitate to say get back to normal, but you know what I mean. What's your, what's your feel? And by the way, I just want to mention to people that the headset, the Oculus can be as high as $400. Others are $299, but there's a Panasonic I saw for $86 and the games are $20 to $30 a piece. So people know what we're talking about, but go ahead. What about that, Eric? Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, um, well, you know, one thing you just brought up, which is the variety of VR headsets. Um, we're focusing on the Oculus because they're $299 and it really gives you the best experience that we found uh, if you're not connected to a PC. So there are a lot of different platforms and a lot of different games for them. But to answer your question, we don't see this interest evaporating. You know, everyone now has, is getting a taste of VR and also doing more things from home. Of course, we all want to go out and be more social and being at the gym is a more social thing. And before the pandemic, VZ Fit was also in gyms. We had relationships with the YMCA, for instance, and about 50 units in those throughout the country. So 
we're going to be fine at the home or back in the gym. And we'd solved a lot of issues, you know, kind of uh, putting them into studios like Forex VR. So we're happy to be wherever you are. Mm. And Andrea, my sense is that this is not a gym rat game. In other, you know, those are those people that are always in the gym, you know, but this seems more like anybody could do this. Yeah, and, and they can. They they absolutely can. Some of the classes that we're offering, they're a little more intense as far as the workout piece, because some people want that extra challenge me and make sure I'm getting a workout out of it. So we have a certified master trainer, um, Natalie Bayersdorfer. She has put together a very customized program to work directly with the exercise benefit that you're going to get from virtual reality at that moment. So it's very interesting. Yes, you always have people that, you know, is this a real substitution for a gym? Uh, it could be, but then you still have reasons to go to the gym. You still have a reason to come into our studio for the unique experience. So I think it's a win-win all around. All right. So a mere child of the 21st century, as you say, <laughs> sounds say like you're going to be. <laughs> yes, sounds like you're going to be uh, hanging with virtual reality for some time. Absolutely, uh, and. Something about the something about the quest, as we were saying, it's it's only two ninety nine, um, which is very cheap given the amount of power that it gives you. It's mobile. You don't need to have a great computer in order to use it, which is another like big hurdle that people have to get over when they want to get into VR. So it's really pushing it into mainstream, which is something that I'm very excited for because I want to share that love with all of the with all of my friends and family and people around me. And. Um... Oculus isn't the only game in town, but I do want to mention, since we're primarily on it, they are releasing a feature called Oculus Move that tracks all your calories across any game you play, whether it's Beat Saber or our game or Creed. So that's something that they've realized is a real big motivation in terms of people buying VR and are pushing that forward. Well, maybe we'll have you guys back a year from now and just see what's going on. But I, I, it, it sounds to me like we'll be hearing a lot about this for some time to come. And I thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And I invite all of you in to uh, come experience it. Thank you for having us. Eric Malafieu is a co-founder of VirZoom, makers of VZ Fit, a virtual reality exercise software. Andrea Sorelli is the CEO and owner of 4XVR, a virtual reality studio. And Amir Madmoon is a student at Wheaton College. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at gbh.org, news under the radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Wes Martin and engineered by Dave Goodman. Angela Yang is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.